This podcast examines the intricacies of mental health and explores the profound influence that financial stress has on our emotional well-being. Financial pressures often loom like a shadow, casting a considerable emotional toll on individuals and is often intertwined with societal expectations. Those pressures can take a significant toll on all of us, affecting all areas of our lives and especially our mental health. Welcome to yet another episode of Reimagine Mental Health. Today's theme is balancing mind and money. Don't go out of your mind thinking about money. We've got to learn to balance our mind when it comes to money. I've got two such stunning guests, and I know they're stunning because we've already had such a wonderful conversation with them, and we're going to carry that through this podcast. I'd love to welcome today Tracy Ward. She's a financial advisor at Investec, and Vangile Makwakwa. She's an author. What's your money per? Personality. It's so lovely to have you in studio. Thank you for having us, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Lovely to be here. Mangila, let's start with you because I chatted ever so briefly to you about your book, What's Your Money Personality? Changing the way black families manage their finances. So what I loved about it is that it is you touch on such universal themes, actually. How we manage money, but particularly the really important part of ancestral trauma when it comes to money. That's what fascinated me. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so let me start by saying, uh, by explaining trauma in a nutshell. Trauma isn't necessarily the big things that happen to us, which is what most people assume trauma is. Trauma is actually an event or circumstance that we experience that we are unable to process. And then it lives on in the body and in our nervous systems. And scientists have found that you can pass on memories and emotions from one generation to the next. The University of Utah has been doing a lot of studies on epigenetics inheritance and looking at how trauma is passed on from one generation to the next. So they did a study on mice. And in the study, mice were put into a little room. And every time they are introduce the scent of cherry blossoms, they would electrocute the mice. I know, really horrible. Then after four or five weeks, they stopped. And then the mice reproduced. The second generation never experienced electrocution. However, whenever they smelled cherry blossoms, they would get in, go into a state of fear that their fathers had gone into. Third generation, the scent of cherry blossoms was introduced they would go into a similar state of fear. This happened generation after generation. Remember, the first group was only electrocuted for about four or five weeks whenever they smelled cherry blossoms, but they started to associate the scent of cherry blossoms with fear and anxiety, and they would shake, and their descendants for generations to come would react in the same way. So researchers started to understand that there's something that happens in how memories are passed on from one generation to the next. So my research started, when I started reading research like this, I was like, why is nobody doing this around money, right? Because the truth is, money is the cherry blossoms in this in this example, right? So your ancestors experienced some kind of event in the past around money, and somehow you don't know why you're reacting the way you're reacting around money right now. Almost a month after I started graduating, I started having panic attacks with money. And it got to the point where I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't buy food, anything that had to do with 
touching money would get me into a state of terror and panic. Including using and spending? Including using and spending. So one of the things that I say that brought about my work was that I actually ended up one day sitting on the side of a sidewalk, unable to go withdraw money from the ATM because money was such a trigger for me. And I couldn't understand where it was coming from. Yes, I've had like really hectic experiences growing up around money, but to the point where I ended up not being able to get out of bed and and the very notion of money would send me into a state. So I had to go back to understand the ancestral history of money in my family and what money has meant and how we associated money with violence, with broken families, with really fighting each other. And then from there, I was able to start regulating my nervous system and start working with money, right? So those memories were deeply embedded in me. Tracy, I want to bring you in here because what Vangile is saying is quite astonishing, actually. She said something quite profound. Money is such a trigger. In your work, you must see that all the time. Money triggering people constantly. Correct. No, we do see that um, regularly. And as I was saying just now, you know, my favorite client is a distressed client because they are experiencing currently in my world trauma around money. And now I also understand maybe where that could come from. And when I'm when I'm dealing with those those distressed clients, you know, there are two ways that you can identify them. One is pure raw panic. Cannot see the wood for the trees. Will give me a budget. Um, and cannot see that this can go from a negative to a positive. Absolutely impossible. But then there's also the societal norms of, oh, no, I can't get rid of DSTV, you know, can't say no to my children. Um, so they can't see how that's going these to work. These pressures, these external pressures that add so much on our, our shoulders. And the second thing that I will generally see, you know, if it's not the raw panic, it goes to the other extreme with head in the sand. Um, and everything's okay and everything's going to be okay. And I've still got 20 years to retirement. I can still pull the rabbit out of a hat. You know, so that's that's what we see often. And as a financial advisor, you know, you've got to try and get the client to separate the emotion from the practical. And that is very difficult. And that's my job. I separate the emotion from the from the math, really. You know, I can show them how the math works, but they need to stand up and work with the emotion. And it's amazing the the emotional effect that money does have on people. And the thing is, it's such a it's such a difficult one because especially after you hear Vangela speaking about how the emotion is often completely out of your control. It's a generational thing. It's been passed down. You've inherited this reaction and this trigger response to money. So my next question then, Vangela, is: Is there a way of breaking this? generational cycle of panic or fear or poverty in, in, in families. Yes, and I can truly say there is a way. So the first thing to understand is, as Tracy's talking about, it's a very, very emotional issue. So most people, um, a, a lot of times it's the amygdala, the, the reptilian part of the brain that has been trained to react to money in a particular manner. So the first step before even trying to get people to talk about budgeting or to do the practical money stuff. The first thing that I work on is regulating the nervous system, but also getting the amygdala to see that there is absolutely no danger around money. So one very practical and easy exercise that I have clients do is 
start by looking at your bank account for five minutes a day so that they can hyperventilate. The nervous system can go through everything. But obviously, that is so scary for most people. It can take, and I'm sure Tracy has had this experience, it can take people up to a month to even look at their bank accounts, to even look at their budget. Because what happens to the nervous system when we get into a state of fear? We get into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses, right? So what we're trying to do is get the nervous system to see that there's nothing to run from. This is not a tiger. This is not a space of danger. This is all in the mind and you sit with it. And over time, the nervous system starts to regulate. Then the next step is looking at their family history. Talk to your grandparents, talk to your great, uh, talk to your mom, your dad, aunts, uncles, and start tracing in four different categories, your family financial history. First one is, how did your family make income? Did any of you ever go beyond normal income, you know, beyond the average income in your community? And then debt, how did you manage debt, right? Your parents, how, what did you see growing up? And then also, how did you, how did your grandparents or parents manage debt? And then savings, what is the savings culture in your family for the past few generations. And then the other one is spending. How did you guys spend? What was your approach to spending? Is it something that you sat down and did? And then start tracking and looking at how are you mirroring your family's financial behaviors in all these four categories. But not only that, also what is some of the wisdom that you got from your family? The truth is so many of us don't even see how our parents may do with so little. We have that capacity as well. That is wisdom. But how did you react to that? Because some of us were deeply traumatized by that. Yes, your parents may do, but they made you feel like you were a burden. And at what cost? And at what cost, right? So how does that impact your nervous system? And I feel like it's such an interesting exercise. Tracy, just coming to you, do you have clients who sit in front of you and go, I'm just bad with money or I don't know how to handle it? What is your advice to them in that moment? Because they're almost willing themselves, they're manifesting this life of being bad with money. You know, there, there isn't an easy way to talk to a client or talk a client around that other than being pretty direct, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all adults. I'm going to be the person who's going to say, look, we actually have to take control of this. You know, you you actually have to become good at money. And whether you are just managing that, not personality-wise, but maybe by drawing up a spreadsheet, understanding what your budget is, the number of people who don't have budgets astound me. Because how do you know what you're spending, when you're spending it, what you've got as an emergency fund? Do you even have an emergency fund? What do you owe on short-term debt? You actually have to want to be in a better place. You have to take control of that. And so I have to find a way almost daily to say that in the nicest possible way. And how do you manage it when it comes to relationships, be it professional or romantic relationships, and it comes to this whole dreaded, I suppose, the massive elephant in the room, the money question? I love it when spouses come into meetings together. And I always, first of all, thank them and congratulate them because so many spouses are just simply not on the same page. You know, they'd really rather not have that question come up. So when they do come in, you get into a conversation with people and you're trying to understand without them even knowing what is each one's view on money. And you can very quickly pick that up. 
you know. And one of the things that make me very sad in a relationship is the resentment factor, you know. And and South, South Africa is very much a keeping up with the Joneses scenario. Um, and you'll often find doctors saying, "Oh, but I'm not making it." You know, I'm, I'm, but you have a look at the at what the income is, and you think, but but how can't you? But it's because I have to live in a certain area, I have to drive a certain car, the kids have to go to a certain school, and eventually there's a type of resentment that comes into the whole scenario, and that's because the money maker and the homemaker are not on the same page, and that is a very very difficult you know situation to actually be in. Does that also apply, Vangile, when dealing with? broader family members who are not necessarily in that kind of nuclear family. Suddenly, you've got a great job. You're seen to have made it, being successful. Oh, they've got money, whoever that may be. And so then suddenly there's the requests from extended family. How does one deal with that? Should one even deal with that? Or should one go, actually, you know what? We're family and we've got an obligation to help where and when we can and whenever we can or whenever they ask. Or is that a very dangerous road to go down? I feel like that depends on every family, but I can truly say that the majority of black people in this country don't have the option to say no, because for most of us, we are our family's financial plans. Our parents put so much money into us or the community puts so much to get you where you are. So it becomes a very, very tricky conversation and it's so interlinked with emotions. So the way that I teach people to have conversations on this, most people are like, I could never do this. But Truthfully, it's really, really challenging because most family, if you are the breadwinner in the family and you are the one that earns the most, you're automatically the one that is asked for support the most. If there are no uh, systems in place for a family like funeral policies, you are the one that's asked to come in and cover the funeral. When weddings happen and there's a shortfall, you are the one that can sometimes be approached and then How do you say no? One of the suggestions that I've made to many people is to literally sit down. And I've done this with my family where you just openly share, this is how much I make. These are my expenses. That's it, you know? And then people will usually infer from that, oh, okay, this is how she can help. And then if people need help, you can say, this is how much I am willing to help with every single month. And people will have to see how to make this happen. So I started doing that. And then I guess my aunts got so impressed with the fact that like I was like putting it all out there. They started becoming vulnerable with money and they started putting their pay slips on the table. And to the point where then we all started working together. They asked me questions. I would answer. They would openly tell me I am in debt. One of my aunts was like, I'm in debt. I'm going to the loan sharks. I have these issues. And she always looked like she had it together. She was the one that the family would go to as well, right? And just by doing this and being open with each other, we started family retreats where we would go talk about money. My aunt got out of debt got an extra property, built back rooms, took early retirement. She has absolutely no debt and she's making money from uh, properties in real estate. This took five years, right? I didn't have to explain hectic investment uh, policies and things to my aunt. Then she found out I was working with a financial advisor and and I was like, let me see all your various policies and That's another thing. A lot of people are given 
financial advice, but they end up investing in the same thing. And no one has said to them, you have to invest according to the vision that you desire for your lifestyle. So my aunt was investing haphazardly because everyone would come to the school, sell her a policy, she'd buy it. Next person from a different company sells her policy, she buys it. She didn't have one advisor that had consolidated everything. So you need one consolidated. Sorry, Vangila, I just want to quickly bring Tracy in. You need one consolidated approach, I imagine. I would imagine so, because otherwise it cannot be a holistic approach. You cannot know everything about the financial situation of the person. So you're not going to want to deal with half of it. You want to deal with everything. And the objectivity of a financial advisor is crucial to everything else. If the financial advisor is objective, they are going to know what is good and what is bad for this particular client only after they've discovered what that person's goals are. You can't just go in and say, I've got this great product you need to, this you need to buy. It suits you because you have absolutely no clue what suits that person. So objectivity is key. I guess it will start with you being vulnerable. That's the only way that we change our families is for us to be open about our finances so that they have permission to do the same with us. Does it also start with being able to identify what money personality you are <laughs> and what the others around you are. So, I, will, I mean, I know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the fixer. I'm number four on this list. Right. So let me start by explaining the money profiles. A fixer is someone that is more the breadwinner of the family and they have the ability to move the family to the next uh, financial level within one single lifetime. Families can go from poverty to upper class in one generation with a very strong fixer archetype, right, or personality type. But if you think about it, the amount of energy that it takes to do that, an almost authoritarian type leadership that goes into that within the family. <laughs> Looking at you, Katie. And I'm laughing I'm, because I'm thinking... Um, what my children call me at home. Why are you always so bossy, mom? Exactly. And that's how they experience And my siblings, you. by the way. My siblings think I'm very bossy. Especially siblings. Family will experience a fixer as bossy. And it's so, yes, you get the job done. People are getting their finances in order. But they also experience it as very traumatic. And at the end of the day, most fixers find themselves being resented or being in arguments with everyone, you, you're you in the middle of money conversations, but everyone is arguing with you. And you're like, but I'm the reason why we have gotten to this point as a family. And then you feel like nobody appreciates you, right? And this is also why most breadwinners will come to me and they'll be like, this family is so unappreciative and they will list everything that they do for the family. And sometimes they'll show me their WhatsApp messages and things that they send to family groups. And I'm like, this is why your family can't stand you. They're like, but this is the truth. I'm like, no, you can't keep reminding people all the things that so you've done. So can you imagine living in a house with two fixes? Oh my word, yeah. The kids are reeling. It's amazing. And then you've got the runaway. So we all have that aunt, uncle, sibling that never shows up for family events except for weddings and funerals, right? Important things. And they just stay out of family drama. That's the runaway. Part of it is that they don't know how to handle a lot of the dynamics and they would literally just avoid money conversations. And because they're never involved in the family unit, you can't actually ask them when there's a random event to pitch in. Even for a funeral, you don't know how to ask them. There's always like, are they going to show up? 
Then you've got the destroyer. So that's me. And (laughs) destroyers love to remind people about what is wrong with the family and to bring it up at the most inopportune times. (laughs) Right. So they are the ones that will remind everyone, uncle so-and-so still owes grandma this much money and we cannot move forward until that issue is addressed and by the way, the fixer, you are not the boss of us all. They clash a lot with the fixer, right? Destroyers are often the black sheep of the family, but they are still involved in the family unit. Um, the way that they use money, which most family members haven't really tapped into, is that it's a very innovative way of using money. So they will usually end up being your Artists, they are the ones that will make a decision that will drive the fixer crazy because they'll be like, we're homeschooling the kids. And the fixer will be like, no, the kids need the best private schools, you know, and that becomes an issue. Then you've got the eternal child. So this is the most triggering of the archetypes. The eternal child archetype is the archetype where they never get to fully adult. They don't know how to manage their finances And it can break families apart because everybody has to look after them. When they have kids, you often end up looking after the kids, period. You know, you can try getting them a job. They can go to school, but they may always end up having to live with one family member. If they do have their own apartment, you end up paying for the apartment. If they, some of them can actually be CEOs of large companies, but have no concept of how to manage their finances and personal lives and be forever broke. And the family will be paying the mortgage. They'll go partying with their money. They'll do exciting things with their money, but forget to take care of responsibilities. Then you've got the last archetype, which is the sweet one. The sweet one is sweet, right? They are often heavily in debt, where the the fixer gives a lot of money, but fixers would never go into debt. That would be irresponsible for a fixer. (laughs) Katie's like, no, they would never, you know, whereas the sweet one will go into debt to fix the family and to help a family. And that's where most people can't tell a difference sometimes between the sweet one and the fixer because the sweet one is involved in the family dynamics. But the difference is the sweet one is loved in the family. Often doesn't have lots of fights. Nobody's looking at them and calling them bossy. In fact, when people have drama... No, actually, I'm the sweet one. I've changed. People will go to them and talk to them about their drama, talk to them about uh, what what their problems are. But the sweet one has the ability, without the sweet one, if you just have a fixer in the family and all these dynamics and all these other personalities... You won't be able to get the family to do certain things. You have to get the buy-in of the sweet one because the sweet one doesn't have everyone in the family hating them or drama with the family. In fact, I call them enablers, you know, sometimes, but they have the ear of people in the family and they will go into debt to save the family. Those are the people where we say they'll borrow you the shirt off their backs to make sure that everything happens. And without them, sometimes family meetings around money can completely fall apart because everyone else has an agenda. The eternal child doesn't care. The runaway just wants to get away. The destroyer and the fixer at each other's throats. The sweet one can listen to everyone and get them all on the same agenda. The sad thing about the sweet one, though, is the amount of debt they go into for the family and how they sacrifice themselves 
to keep the family together. When you hear all of this, Tracy, what are you thinking? You're taking lots of notes. So there's a lot to take in. So I think Vangelia should be employed by us so that she can deal with the emotional side and we can deal with the math. You're going to meetings together. <laughs> I think so. Um, there's just so much, you know, that, that with what you're saying and, and it's all understandable and everything makes 100% sense. My challenge is getting time with a client. I literally have a 20-minute window. And as you were saying earlier, you know, um, people sometimes will take a month for them to look at their bank account. It can take three months for me to gather the data from the client that I need to be able to do a comprehensive financial needs analysis so that we know what page they're on. Because they just, you know, it's that burying the, is a head in the sand thing. Um, and and so, so when, when we get all of that information, if we could spend time on this, on the emotional side, it would be so awesome. But people don't give their money the same time as they possibly would to arranging the holiday to go to the Rugby World Cup. Do you then think, though, that we need to reconfigure and reshape the way that banking industries actually deal with clients to in order to merge these two worlds? Because we aren't one-dimensional people. We're not just about the data and the black and white and the figures, but we're all of these things, sweet one, destroyer, everything uh, intertwined. So hasn't the time come to relook at the way we help people in the financial sector? So absolutely from an education perspective. We had a phenomenal uh, roadshow at the end of last year where we went around the country and it was about financial wellness. And the, the panel were real people People who've made mistakes, how did they get out of their mistakes? Are they still making mistakes, which we always will do? And that education piece, you know, I'd I'd had so many comments afterwards. And in fact, my husband had joined on one of them and said, but why aren't you doing this for the men? Why are you only focusing on women, you know? And that, I think, was hopefully for me the start of a journey of the education process of money. Um, because as I was saying, you know, during your working day when you're dealing with clients, you know, they haven't got that time to give you. But when they're coming to an educational piece, you know they want to be there. I certainly feel like we need a part two of this because there is so much to explore. We've literally just given a prelude to not just money personalities, but how then we interact with other personalities and how we make good decisions for ourselves. And going back to what we started with, breaking that ancestral trauma and breaking generational poverty or generational money mismanagement in a way that is healthy for ourselves, for our children, and for generations to come. The My Story Evangelia will stay with me for a very long time because, you know, not only does it apply to money, but but suddenly you're thinking it makes so much sense just generationally, communities, nationality. It's really quite profound. We need a we need a, an episode two of this one. Um, I'm hoping we can we can make that happen at some point. But for now, let me say thank you so much to both of you, ladies. Thank you very much. Thank you thank so much, you Katie. This brings us to the end of today's episode of our Reimagine Mental Health podcast series, brought to you by Investec Life an authorised FSP and licensed insurer. If you'd like to listen to the next episode, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, farewell from me, Katie Katapodas, and the Investec Life team. 